0: Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, the effortlessly handsome Phokian Dionysus. Um, I spoke with him recently uh, about Nietzsche and aristocratic Christianity, uh, but he's written some new essays on the topic, and so I wanted to continue the discussion. Phokian,
1: how are you? I'm good, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. It's always a great pleasure. Uh, So, I thought it
0: seems to me in some ways your reinterpretation of Christianity or your attempt to find its innermost powerful core or something like that um, kind of like brings you into waters where, or, or there maybe seems to be that Nietzsche is kind of like in the background of the project where his account of Christianity is obviously, you know, or at least on the surface, it seems to be negative, I suppose, his assessment. and And so he says, like things like this in Beyond Good and Evil, um, aphorism 46, he says, modern men, obtuse to all Christian nomenclature, no longer feel the gruesome superlative that struck a classical taste in the paradoxical formula, God on the cross. Never yet and nowhere has there been an equal boldness in inversion. Anything else, anything as horrible, questioning and questionable as this formula. It promised a revaluation of all the values of antiquity. And so in thinking about this, I guess I've been spending a lot of time with Homer lately and just thinking about Zeus on the cross for all of humanity. You know, it doesn't seem possible. that when Nietzsche says that this offends classical taste, they sort of start to think about Zeus and his sons um, as opposed to Jesus within Christianity. And it does look like an inversion. And it, it, it seems like it's also fair to say that Homer presents like his hero Achilles as having a kind of aristocratic morality, a sort of, you know, when he says like in the opening lines, like something like, you know, the the loss of countless Achaeans, um, you know, sort of like what Achilles wants because he's been dishonored because he really sees something like quality over quantity or something along those lines, just as a sort of contrast to the way that Nietzsche is presenting this or presenting Christianity, that is. And so but what you are trying to do, as it seems to me, is show that it's not necessarily a complete revaluation of all values um, or something, something along those lines that there is that no doubt Nietzsche and Homer and Christianity maybe will, there'll be some like disagreements between Homer and Nietzsche on this like more explicitly aristocratic side and Christianity on the other. But nevertheless, it seems to me that you found maybe some aristocratic resources within Christianity, or that it's possible not to see it as a slave morality, um, that it it could be something much different than that.
1: So I'm curious uh, what you think about that. Um, Yes, when you put it that way, or when Nietzsche puts it that way, what he's doing is countering or opposing the typically Western Christian uh, assessment of Christianity, which is that Christianity was not a reevaluation of all values insofar as it wasn't an inversion of values, but it was a you know completion of the values that came before. So, um, if you just want to think about the two sets of virtues, like the like the cardinal virtues and the theological virtues, I think someone like Nietzsche would say that the theological virtues. Um, attack and invert the cardinal virtues or if you like if you have the theological virtues you lose the cardinal virtues whereas a typically christian assessment would say that no the cardinal virtues call for the theological virtues and christianity brings the theological virtues and then they and they and these can only be brought and can only be instantiated uh, you know that's a maybe a word without meaning if, if Hobbes were Mad at me, but the virtues could only be practiced um, with grace or through the sacrifice of the Christ figure. So, I am trying to. I'm not. Yeah, I'm. I'm denying in a way that Christianity is an inversion of values, and I'm arguing. And I think I'm in line with um, classical thinkers that Christianity is a, a completion of the ancient values. So. Um, with that in mind, I, I still look towards guys like Nietzsche and other right wingers um, who read Nietzsche uh, because we have problems today, specifically the L, like the sexual perversion problem of LGBTQ, and then like the racial communism of like Black Liberation Theology and Christianity, things like this. Um, so these are modern problems, and Nietzsche and other modern right wingers are very good at approaching these problems and providing a, a, a reasonable response to them. And it's, you know, the, the, the Christian tradition, the Bible and like Augustine and Aquinas and these guys, they aren't writing about the kinds of problems we face today. Um, not mm-hmm. because Christianity has nothing to say about those problems, but, you know, you don't write about problems that you're not facing. So, or that you can't even fathom. So, um, so I think that it's, uh, it would behoove Christians to think about what a genuine Christian response is rather than merely try to accommodate Christianity to the modern morality. Mm -hmm.
0: You, you said something interesting, and this is something that you didn't – We well, said a lot of interesting things, but th- there's something that you hadn't written about in any of the essays that you have on Christianity, but you've evidently thought about it. So I hope I'm not putting you on the spot to ask about um, – you, you said that there was a kind of conflict between theological virtues on one hand and cardinal virtues on the other. Could Would you be willing to maybe mention like one example of what that looks like?
1: I would just say for, take Nietzsche, for example, uh, the slave morality is like the true meaning of the theological virtues. That's how I think he would think about it. And whereas, uh, the master morality is the true meaning of the cardinal virtues, the cardinal virtues, as you know, being courage, moderation, uh, justice and prudence or justice and wisdom. So, um, I th- I think that it's very easy for people to um want to call themselves good and what they do a lot of times is they ignore the cardinal virtues because those are actually very difficult um and the theological virtues are unfortunately very easy to fake um so it's much easier to you know to claim you love people um, than to uh, show that you're moderate or be courageous um, but like genuine love is something that's very difficult so um, it's I think for Nietzsche the theological virtues um, he wanted to or he actually did view them as a an attack on the cardinal so, I see
0: so this reminds me of something we talked about last time. Um where you you had talked about two different ways of understanding universal morality. And there was sort of like a high way to understand universal morality to say that at bottom, maybe there is some kind of standard that all human beings ought to live up to if they could, but it might be the case that very few people are able to do so. Um, And so there's not very many virtuous human beings by that account. And then I think you had mentioned that there's a different version of universal morality, which is something like, oh, well, because it's for everybody, this, the bar must be pretty low. Like you barely have to step over something, and then you're virtuous or something, something along those lines. Um, and that this kind of reminds me of that, these two different ways of thinking about it. But you, you, I think, are yeah, highly interested in thinking that Christianity is a high bar, like a very difficult bar to get over rather than something you merely step over that anybody could. Uh, the, you know some people can fall over and it would be fine, but like you don't you don't think that's the case
1: yeah i no matter um, there's no getting around the quotation that narrow is the gate um so like for christianity there are it's very tempting to say that it is, in fact, just a very low standard and that everyone, pretty much everyone who's not Hitler gets, will go to heaven. Um, And then some people will even say, yes, even Hitler. Um, And by, and I mean like, yeah, anyway, so, um, (laughs) so that kind of Christianity is very, the, the standard for conduct and like, it's very easy to be virtuous or to be good um but i think that it's that kind of that view is contradicted by uh of serious reading of the scriptures. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So yeah, so then maybe let's move to the two um essays that you wrote about Christianity. The first one is on like what motivates Christians, like what at bottom is animating or moving their souls when they do what they do. Um so um, one of the, the things you start out the first essay on Christian motivation with is you, well, um, maybe I'll ask it this way. Why do you think that many Christians yearn for a scientific vindication of the Bible? For example, people get really excited at the possibility that there's like physical evidence of the flood from the account of like Noah's Ark or something like that. Like, look, there was a giant flood, Like, so it must be true. Um, what do you think Christians hope for? out of this kind of scientific explanation or an exam or examination of physical evidence. And in your view, why shouldn't they hope? Why should they not hope for, or, or Yeah. Why should they not like depend upon those kinds of explanations, um, like for their faith or for the Bible or something? Mm-hmm. Like
1: that? So <clears throat> I think there are um, a variety of motivations behind this desire, I'm going. I can like talk about maybe the primary ones, the main ones. Um, The the most unsavory is, of course, the simple fear of death, and so people see that they see death all around them, and what they would really like, they would like for uh, miracles to be confirmed. You know, they would like to see miracles so that they know that the iron necessity of nature is breakable. Um, Mm. and that way they don't have to die. So I think that that is a motivation. It's not a good motivation and it's certainly, it's a motivation that could lead you to any number of religions, not merely Christianity, for example. Um, so, so you
0: saying that because human beings fear death and it's hard to do otherwise, um, that they want a firm basis. Like they want to like know, like be certain about the possibility of an afterlife. And if, or to the extent there's physical evidence available to examine, there's a kind of demonstration available to them so that their faith can be put on like much firmer footing where their hope that they won't die is on a much firmer footing. Is, would that be a fair way to say what you're saying?
1: Yeah, that, that would be basically like they don't want to have to have faith. They would rather have knowledge, which is understandable to a certain degree, but like, right. You know, it would be it would be really nice if you could know that what you really are is your soul and not your body. So that when you died, you could know that your soul would migrate um, to a better place or to some place. So I would say that this is one motivation, but not the only one. Um, There's also a more I would say more specifically Christian motivation where there are um, especially for men mate they're making um sacrifices and they want to know if those sacrifices are worthwhile so um let's say for example maybe there's a man who refuses you know pleasures to himself uh we could be specific like like maybe he refuses to eat cakes unless he's at the table with coffee after a meal is finished, or maybe he refuses to uh, have sex with anyone, but um, uh, a wife once he's married. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe he refuses these things and, you know, maybe he is always, you know, he sees cakes all the time and he can always be so easy for him to pick up cakes. Um, But he's like, you know, I, I, I do not allow myself to indulge in like physical fashions. I guess it's not necessarily unchristian to eat cakes in an uncivilized manner, but it should be, <laughs> um, uh, but it is unchristian to have sex in an uncivilized manner. So um, the um, fellow who keeps himself within the bounds um, or the limits set down by The Bible or God's will, he might think to himself that, you know, he's missing out, and he better be. He he hopes he'll be compensated. That it's not worth it. He doesn't want to be wasting his time. Like I've heard, I have heard people say, older men especially. If I didn't think the promises of the Bible were true, I'd go out and buy a sports car and have a grand old time. You know, like I'd go, I'd go let loose. and so these men, they do not believe that obeying God's command is good in itself or, or in a class, uh, more ancient formula, that virtue is good for its own sake. So they really um, are, they don't really have, I wouldn't say they have faith so much as, I mean, they have some sort of faith and hope. They really hope that like them having a less happy life now will result in something better later. Right. um and i just and that's that's an i think um, one it's a slightly mercenary view of god mm-hmm. and two it um misses the point of god's will for man's life the pattern in which god has set down for man and, and as to how we should live so um that is what I think they are missing out on when they really bank on wanting like a scientific demonstration of, you know, like I remember as a young man, I was very obsessed with the idea that we could prove that the variety of animals had to be created because their biology was, couldn't have evolved because it was irreducibly complex. That was the, uh, creationist term at the time. I don't know what it is now. Um, and so you science could, science could prove that life had to be created because it could prove that life could not have evolved to the complexity it exists at today. So I thought that was like, wow, that just sounds awesome. Um, but ultimately, it, it runs into the same problem that modern natural science runs into today, which is, Modern natural science cannot tell us how to live, um, and not only cannot, can it not tell us how to live? It doesn't. It might even make us worse people. Um, so, um, Christians with this desire for scientific proof of their faith, I think, are making. Like they're making, they're importing a lot of um, things that aren't in science into science. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that, that's interesting. So, so then it seems like, based on what you're saying, part of what might what might make Christianity noble, um, and aristocratic is the fact that the most serious kind of Christian might not be concerned with those kinds of proofs that have like a firm basis that you're like, Oh, I know that the Bible is true because we found this evidence. And therefore I know that I will in a mercenary way be compensated for the sacrifices that I've made. And I'll be handsomely rewarded for eternity. Wow. That sounds like a great deal. And now I know I'm going to get it because like I was able to turn down the cakes and all of the women and things like that. Like, wow, this is going to be great. But it's almost like more noble, more rare um, to sort of say like, well, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Like there's like a little, th- there is some evidence, you know, that maybe inclines me to believe, but I, I don't know for sure what's going to happen. And by like searching for these like firmer bases, like a firmer base in that sense, like you're being less, I don't know, you're, you're less willing to make yourself vulnerable to the unknown or less willing to, make a potential sacrifice that's actually simply a sacrifice and that that is more noble, making the sacrifice, not knowing for sure, not having a firm basis of certainty. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I don't know if that makes
1: sense. Uh, I think it, yeah, it does make sense. Um, if I understand you correctly, men should, you know, care, like they should care about doing the right thing and living in the right way it's not for them to know whether god exists or not um like i like the the pascal line or view that the like the end of reason is reasons realization of its limitations so you you know realize what you can and cannot know this is what philosophy is um, and then you can like get faith somehow. And once you have faith, then you either, I think as as soon as you get faith, you already have the, like faith is commensurate with a way of life and you mm-hmm. don't really get faith unless you, um, have that way of life. So I'm tempted, I would be tempted to say that the people who, even though they a bunch of different people call themselves Christians. They live very different ways. And so in that, insofar as they live different ways, they have different faiths. But um, that's an aside, I'm afraid.
0: <laughs> yeah, interesting. So so since we're kind of like on the question of like the way of life that stems from a faith, um, there's something that you were driving at in the motivation essay. Um, that was really interesting with respect to morality, You note that most people look at morality from the standpoint of an action is either A, selfish, or B, selfless. Do you think that this is a mistaken starting point? Um, and, and to put the question a slightly different way, a way I suppose that's familiar to both of us, is that, you know, for instance, like Straussians who are interpreting Plato might say that an action is either noble which is to say it's like, you know, resplendent and beautiful in proportion to the amount of like sacrifice that's required in order to make it happen, including especially the sacrifice of one's own life. So it's always self-denial. It seems like that's a way that the noble is presented by them. And then on the other hand, the good is the profitable or the advantageous. So then the good is the selfish and the noble is the selfless. Do you think that we ought to look at morality from this standpoint of selfish actions on one hand and selfless actions on the other. Is this the right way to look at morality
1: or is there a different or better way to look at it? Um, I'll address that now, but I'll, if, remind me to say something about the Straussian view of the noble at the end, if I don't remember it. Um, yeah. So when it comes to these two sources of morality, the selflessness or selfishness, um, people want there to be a sort of answer to the moral question. They want to know like, what is good and what is bad. So, like, they realize on some level that they cannot say things like, killing is bad, or being rich is good, or sharing is good. Like, They realize they have to make some sort of distinction. There are good and bad killers. There are, you know, there's, like, soldiers and who's defend their country. Then there's, like, uh, murders and so on and so forth, you you run into this problem um, where no matter what kind of action you have, you still are not able to distinguish good and bad people based on that action. So they want, they want a sure answer to the moral questions. They want the good people... To, and so they look, go looking for distinctions, right? Like, okay, so if killing is not good or bad, or if stealing or if taking things from others is not good or bad, or if giving things to others is not good or bad, how do I know, or being a parent is not good or bad, how, how do I know who was good and who was bad? Um, so they want the good people to be clearly demarcated from the black black people, the bad people. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that was not a Freudian slip, <laughs> so funny. All right, um, that's going to stay in the recording. Um, they want the good people to be selfless and the bad people to be selfish, or they want the good people to be defenders and the bad people to be aggressors, or they want the good people to be poor and powerless and the bad people to be rich and powerful. So they they go in search of some distinction um, because they they can't make it merely just a matter of action. So it's got to have, they go looking maybe in the motivations, right? Um, But the fact is, unfortunately for them, sometimes being selfless can be bad, being defensive can be bad, and being poor can be bad. And on the other side, sometimes the immoral people do all these things and the good people act in their own interest. Sometimes the good people are aggressive. Sometimes they are selfish or self-interested, and sometimes they are powerful. So you, there's no security for what is right and wrong in these very uh, flimsy distinctions. Um, and that is the really the main thing that I'm driving against. But um, certainly when it comes to selfless or selfish action, I think you there is you can make a difference between selfishness and selflessness there are people who do things that certainly appear less petty or less small-souled but ultimately i think everyone who does anything if you're psychologically like if you're if you're if you're a, if you're a psychologist of any kind or you're, if you're psychologically acute you start you realize that everyone can benefit or does benefit or thinks they're going to benefit from every action even the most apparently selfless actions um the difference is not like do you benefit or do you not benefit but um what do you think is to your benefit and there are people who they will grasp after the smallest gains um and they will throw away civilization for the tiniest gains or they'll throw away camaraderie they'll throw away friendship they'll throw away love uh over very petty minor um acquisitions like small amounts of money um you know small points of honor these kinds of things these kinds of people are are terrible and worthless and they degrade um everything they touch but um So that's, so on that level, I don't like the self, the selfish selfless dichotomy.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it seems, I mean, there's a lot to what you're saying. It seems like one thing that you're pointing to is that part of what we want out of saying that this person is selfish and that person is selfless is we kind of like want some sort of abstraction independent of like the particulars in a way that's just like very easy to apply because we don't want to like, actually exercise our judgment it's like just a lot easier to be just like well he's selfish that person's selfless or something something along those lines because if you suddenly had to admit that this good person actually was selfish precisely because they were aggressive imposed their will and then like brought order to whatever activity it is that they're doing then it like makes it like a lot harder to like figure it out so if like you just have these like ready-made abstractions of like well that person's racist that person's not racist or something like that then it's like really easy to sort of like reinterpret all their actions to this like readily you know available matrix as opposed to like oh well that person's an anti-racist but like they never go outside and they just you know order food and they just whatever they're just like in their basement but like occasionally they post online about this kind of thing but there's this other guy who has like racist opinions but actually has like more black friends than like a lot of like anti-racist people which like, I know people like this. Um, uh, like, I don't know. So it seems like the the sort of easy abstraction of like racist, anti-racist gets exploded when you like look at the particulars of like how people interact. And I don't know. It's just kind of pleasurable to just like – just like say, it's really easy to put people in these like different boxes. I don't know. It's like a, just a, just a way to outsource your judgment to this like external abstraction that just makes the world easier to navigate or something like that.
1: I really like that last formulation a way to outsource your judgment. Um that's exactly what's going on. They want because if you can out the idea is that they want a way of judging that admits of no controversy such that even the dimmest most foolish stupid person can tell the difference between what is good and what is bad because if you can get that if that were possible then you could finally have like um, clarity and therefore a law and there be no real, there, no more real conflict um, and you could know that you're always right when you punish the, the wrongdoer. Um, mm-hmm. Like ultimately their desire is to yeah, have it easy. Mm-hmm. Right. Now
0: before we move on from the motivation question I think you said um a, a bit
1: earlier that you had a note on the Straussian account of the oh, noble. Oh yeah. Um so the Straussian and it's, you know to to be nice to the Straussians it's not only them like even CS Lewis in his book The Abolition of Man um there is this idea that the noble is primarily characterized by self-sacrifice for others, especially and above all for your friends and your fatherland. Now, that is a danger, I would say, or a risk that noble men run when they're doing noble deeds. But what makes something noble is not so much the risk as so much as it is the difficulty that, and like the fact that very few people could accomplish the task. So um, that's why I say dying in battle is noble. Whereas if you say work at a meatpacking plant and you fall into the grinder and get ground up and die and you die, you're die, you're, you know, it's not noble. Like, even though you are working to provide a, let's say you're a communist, right? You're a communist working in a meatpacking plant. You're like, I work in the meatpacking plant for my comrades and for the nation. And oh, he died. And it's just just as noble as a soldier. It's not, right? Um, So (laughs) it's not the death, it's not the sacrifice that makes the deed a noble deed. It's the fact that you, the man, it's the, the difficulty of the task is what makes the deed a noble deed. That is, there are things that are necessary to do to accomplish f- political freedom or prosperity. And there are very few men who can accomplish these deeds or it's very difficult. So the men who can are deserving more honor than the men who cannot or do not try. That is what makes what is noble, noble.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, because I think like the formulation that I offered earlier, I deliberately uh... – like excluded difficulty. And I just only mentioned self-sacrifice. So like from like an earlier MCC essay, uh, when I was, cause like MCC is obviously animated by promoting noble deeds, the understanding of nature and something like nationalism, although the nationalism has to be, I think more broadly defined since like States, uh, what was we talked about last time are I don't know, maybe an obsolete form of social technology in, in a certain sense, but there's more to say about that another time. Um, but like, yeah, but like a noble action is a beautiful one, and its beauty or resplendency is proportionate to the difficulty or self sacrifice demanded by the action. Um, yeah, it's like, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to read the rest of that, but the moral of the story is just to say I completely agree that the the rareness or the difficulty is absolutely the case. So then, by your account of what nobility is, if it's more about the difficulty or the rareness, than that would make philosophy relatively noble or something like that, because the philosopher might be the rarest human animal, the rarest human type. Um In addition to like the saint, the saint is noble, maybe precisely because the saint is rare. Um, yeah. He's doing something difficult by conquering their own soul in some way.
1: Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, you just take, I really like this line by Patton in his speech to the, um, army, the third, I think it's the 13th. Um, now it's maybe it's the third. I'm going to look like a fool. Sorry, I don't know my history that well, but I know, I know this quote by Patton, which is um, captured. It's a it's in his real speech, but it's also captured in the '70s movie Patton, where he says, "Like uh, those people that are telling you it's like beautiful to die for your country, like they don't know, they don't know. Like the the purpose, our purpose is to make the other dumb bastard die for his country." right? Right. Like, and Patton did not die in battle, but he's still more glorious than the average soldier that he led. Why? Because he did the more difficult thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll have to talk
0: more later, I think, about the noble and the good. I'd like to formulate my thoughts, like, more on it. Um, So, uh, like, otherwise I'll just, like, ramble or something like that. So, But I'm sure, well, obviously we'll talk about this later, but... um, So, so moving moving to your second essay, and obviously, uh, like once I'm you know, done asking the question, if there's more you want to say about motive for your motive essay, obviously okay. you should say anything you think is good. But um, we talked about – if we move on to the power essay, we talked a little bit in our previous conversation on aristocratic Christianity, um, and you've developed your thoughts more on the relationship between Christianity and wealth and power since it's, it's a little bit paradoxical. But you proposed two general interpretations. The first interpretation is, as you say, a kind of uh, communistic, secularized version of Christianity, which is like this. Power or money necessarily corrupts the man. That's just what it does, and it really can't do otherwise. But then you propose an alternative interpretation that might also be true to Christianity, which is this. Um, A bad man with wealth or power will be revealed as bad buy their money because now they can do things that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise they're actually they have the capacity to exercise um their desires and so now it's a question like well what did you actually want now that you have the power to get what you want um did you want good things or did you want bad things um to simplify it i suppose but and you, and you propose that this is like that liberalism as a secularized version of christianity has taken this interpretation of christianity for itself that power shows the man. If you have power, it'll be brought to light whether you're good or bad, whether you're worthy of the power or whether you, you know, didn't deserve it or something like that. So I don't know, I guess I'm like curious which of these two interpretations do you think ultimately at bottom I don't know like which of these is like the true Christian interpretation or or maybe there's a better way to ask the question but maybe I'll leave it there for now to see what you have to say.
1: No, it's fine. I mean, um, I think that there is a fear of power, especially this goes hand in hand with the desire for there to be a clear morality. I think people do not like the existence of power because they have a difficulty they don't believe that morality can be clear enough and so they worry that power will be abused or something like that um okay but um i've been thinking a little bit more so thinking about power itself like might in fact be foolish so if you're if we're required to talk about power as a thing then I uh, i think it's Simply foolish to say, well, I would like to abolish power. Um, The obviously reasonable thing to say is, I want the good people to get power and the bad people to not have power. That is the reasonable thing to say. No matter, I mean, it upsets a lot of people. Surprisingly, that that is what you should say. People tend to people tend to want to say, I just oppose. You should just oppose power. Okay. However, thinking about power in itself might might be foolish. We might be falling into a trap when we talk about power as if it were a thing. So if we discard the notion, we might think more clearly. What if a man said, I want to be a good person and I don't want other people to get in the way of that, or I don't want poverty to get in the way of that, or I don't want other things to get in the way of that. Here, there is no, quote, seeking after power either man is able to be good or he isn't it's reasonable to want to be good and this includes having the ability to be good so we we might improve our thinking by starting to realize that power is not is almost like color it's not a thing independent of itself um, hmm. no one wants power like that they want the ability to be good or to bring about what they think is good the idea that you just like One, power for power's sake, I think is a false, it's one, it's a false accusation. It's almost, it's the one that people say a lot. They like, especially conservatives, they say it's about the left because they can't think of why the left is doing what it's doing. And they think, oh, they just want power for power's sake. I've heard this said many times. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's an error. And um, we should probably start to be more attentive to our, how much we are thinking relies on this thing called power that might not actually be a proper way of thinking. Hmm.
0: I like, so it, it seemed like you have like a formulation, almost like out of Plato's Mino. Um, when you said that power is like color. And I think in the Mino, it's like the idea of color depends upon the idea of shape because the only way to perceive yeah. color is to see one shape juxtaposed against another shape. Otherwise everything would be the same color. So shape is like the limit of color in that sense could you say so were you sort of saying that like the desire to become a good person depends upon power in the sense that you have to have the capacity to do it in the same way that power depends upon some desire to do something good so it's like neither the left nor the right desires power for power's sake but each of them has like a contrasting vision of the good that they'd like to actualize but the left has done you know, up to this point or at this moment in history, a better job of actualizing vision of the good, whereas the right lacks the capacity to impose their vision of the good right now. But that your notion of the good is inseparable to some extent from your power to actualize it or something along those lines. Is that, is that a fair representation? Yeah, you're getting
1: it? Yeah, it is. Basically, if you think that there are people out there who sit down and they think, you know what I want? I want power. And and it's like and someone would ask "Well, why do you want power?" and they'd say, "I just want to make the world worse. I want to ruin my life. I want to like screw over people just for, for just because I think it will make me sad." Um, no one does that, right? So therefore, no one wants power. They actually all want to be good and they want to be able to be good. So talking about this thing power actually distorts our thinking about People's motivations.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's that seems right.
0: Yeah. Okay. Good. So then, um, why is Christianity so easily misunderstood? Like, how is it possible to interpret it in ways that seem almost completely opposed with one another? That sometimes, well, that you know, Christianity can be adapted to a monarchy. Christianity can be adapted to liberal democracy. <clears throat> can be adapted to like almost any regime. And so that makes it look like it's kind of flexible in a way, but I'm wondering, um, and and yeah, so some people like have a liberation theology, like account of this, which is still something I don't really understand other than, you know, what you've told me about it. I just have never looked into it because I'm not very interested. Um, But uh, so it seems like there's, there's a way to interpret it as communistic. So that is to say for like a low type of human being that it's like for just them. And there's this aristocratic way to say like, no, actually following Christianity will make the best men as good as they can be like these like two like alternative accounts so is the problem with interpretation is it because of the nature of Christianity like what it is it's just hard to understand like what it is or something like that or is it just more within the types of men who examine Christianity is it are the bad interpretations just the fault of lower types of men looking at this phenomena and seeing what they want to see or is it that the phenomena itself that's being examined is like
1: perplexing itself or something like that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, I think in it, I think everyone would agree that bad people interpret everything or interpret things badly. So, <laughs> um, like, corrupt people reading the Bible will. Um, Produce corrupt interpretations of the Bible. Now, I know that that might sound like a difficulty for Christians reasonably. For example, like, a, uh, but we won't go into it. <clears throat> um, people who are corrupt and bad, when they try to interpret the Bible, tend to produce bad and corrupt interpretations. Is this the only reason why Christianity has in our day and age? not always been the best influence on political life. It's a good question. Um I do not know what it is. A, like I think it might be our age. In our age Christians do seem or so many Christians seem unable or unwilling to apply the faith to real questions of the day or when they do apply them they merely seek to accommodate the faith to the prevailing moral opinion of the day and that opinion is demonstrably false and practically wicked like apart from any religious consideration at all it's easy to see that our public promotion of sexual perversion and, and hatred of white people is wicked or evil or or bad or all of mm-hmm. the above so you can look at like you can look at t- today in uh this like conflict in uh israel and the gaza strip is um and how american universities and the students there are perceiving it as instructive you can look at how jews are being treated on college campuses and like um how all you know the students and so many professors are pro hamas and pro the attacks and they view the um the hamas offensive as a sort of like uh colonialized versus the colonializer that kind of thing um but, and you can point this out to Christians and Christians will say, well, that, I mean, almost all the Christians I've talked to have said, have are on the side of Israel. They think it's terrible that these colleges would promote Hamas over the Jews. That's anti-Semitism. But then if you say to them, you know, if you think what they say about the Jews is bad, you should hear what they say about white people. The Christians <laughs> like, like, yeah, if you think like they're okay with that, they're okay with a whole lot more worse things or, you know, worse things happening to uh, white people. So if you say that, to Christians, they clam up and look at you with worry in their eyes, and they 're worried that you might say something uncomfortable in the next sentence like it 's a madness that they have, but it 's not a christian madness uh, it 's a madness of our times that these people are caught up in so and the fact is they aren 't Christian enough to pull themselves out of the racial madness of our times they're completely steeped in it, and they just they um, interpret their Christianity according to it mm-hmm. okay now, why? Unfortunately, now as to why Christians make these errors, um, Christianity sometimes seems to invite these errors. It's really, I mean, it's because people view Jesus as more like Gandhi than a Stoic. Now, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. Jesus is, of course, first and foremost, the Christ, and as such is incomparable to other men. But, you know, I mean, you know what I mean. Jesus disparages a lot of worldly things. He is crucified in the end. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey instead of entering in a grand style. People read these things today, and they start down the road of liberation theology and Christian Marxism. And since today we are obsessed with Black people as history's representatives of poor people, Christians begin to elevate Blackness as like a concept, and that's where you get things like Black liberation theology. Um, James Cone is a name that's, he's a a quote-unquote theologian who's unfamiliar to basically every American Christian, but he's probably read in every seminary that's not explicitly conservative. So mm-hmm. um, Christianity's like um, care for the poor and the downtrodden um, is reinterpreted along sexual and racial lines today, which is not at all um, implied or a requirement of the Gospels or of any part of Scripture. Um, but um, this, you know, this care for the poor and the downtrodden does seem to lend itself to democratic social norms or democratic morality or what Nietzsche would call slave morality. Um, this cannot be denied. However, um, the care for the poor and the downtrodden isn't the entirety of the message of the Gospels or of the New Testament. It's merely a part. And as a part, it is, I think, actually subordinate to more important things like having the true faith, believing in the true God, acting in the right way, not giving in or assimilating to the ways of the world. These aspects of Christianity um, are the reason why we're told that the way few will enter into the kingdom of God, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that the gospel writers and the Paul and the disciples—they, in their time and place, they had to emphasize certain things and uh, diff- to different in their letters to different people and these kinds of things. Um, but you can. S- you don't have to, and you shouldn't interpret the Christian faith as a, a, fa- a democratic faith, or a faith for democracy, or e, or much less a faith that affirms sexual perversion or racial communism.
0: Hmm. Well, that's helpful. Um, there's a lot to say about that, but uh, I think we're maybe running up against like about the end of things. Um, yeah. So do you, No, we could also push this off to another time. So it's up to you. Um, like, I think that an essay that you had written before these two Christian essays was on like a book on the American South in which or like a, sort of like an idea for a book where you trace out the different interpretations of liberalism that are developed in North and South and how Christianity related, or sorry, sorry developed in relation to those different interpretations. And, and it seems like a book well worth writing and you're probably the only man who could do it well. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't, I I don't want to ask you to at all walk through the whole arc of your hypothesis about this, but um, do you want to close maybe with just like a statement on like this book idea, sort of like what you take to be the most important idea that you want to communicate with it if you were to undertake this
1: project? Um, so for starters, the idea behind that post was, I kind of want to start doing posts where I'm like, this is a book idea. Um, <laughs> I, Unless like some kind of beautiful change happens, I'm not going to be writing this book. I have other things on my plate that are more pressing and, and in many ways more interesting. Uh, okay, but that being said, um, I think that... Everyone can tell we're in the death throes of liberalism. So I I really think it's worthwhile or I'm personally interested in looking at all of the various rebellions against liberalism over the course of the past several hundred years. Um, The one that is most interesting to me personally is the Confederacy's attempt to break away and either break away from liberalism or to reestablish liberalism on sort of a new foundation a, a new like cornerstone to use Alexander Stevens' words um, and because I'm interested in this because I think that all of these rebellions and especially the southern rebellion against liberalism they all are rightfully rebelling against something and they have something because they have something good that they know will be lost if they um, bend the knee to the increasing power of liberalism so um that being said though there's a reason they all lose and i so i want i think it's interesting to look at what was the good thing that they were trying to preserve and why did they lose what got in the way not only of their physical strength but of their own self-understanding such that they were unable to produce a genuine philosophical or ideological competitor to liberalism i mean the fact is like the southern apologists they say a lot of interesting things but they are none of them on the level of john locke um and there's a reason why of course the, there's the sheer fact of the man john locke like his great heart and great mind isn't found in every person but there are there were southerners with great hearts and great minds but they they never thought things through to the bottom in the way that Locke was able to um they were more or less brilliant polemicists and great political theorists but never uh in the in like the Straussian sense genuine philosophers so I want to I'm interested in like
0: you said they're brilliant
1: polemicists who It's it's sort of cut out for a second Oh, the Southerners were brilliant polemicists and great political theorists, but they never really became, in the Straussian sense, like genuine philosophers. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um,
0: wow. Well, this is this has been, man. This is well. This was a lot of fun. Um, I I learned things. Um, I said a lot of things that like weren't in my notes, but I felt good about those things. And <laughs> I don't know. I think like we. Like, this is quite good on it's wonderful to have you uh, back here. And I think, I think you all will be seeing a little bit more from Fokian in, you know, the coming weeks and months. Um, And I think that's an extremely good thing. Do you have any last things that you would like to say?
1: Yes. Although many times the duo Fokian and Brian service Wilson has been counted out. We keep on going. It's been good.
0: Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Over over a thousand human beings, you know, subscribing to MCC now, and uh, we will reconquer the Western mind. This <laughs> uh, the right wing future elite of the future will be formed uh, at MCC and elsewhere. But um, anyway, it, it will be formed. Yes, it will be formed. So Brian Cerberus Wilson and Folky and Dionysus are out.